Well, good morning and a happy new year to you and yours. It's good to see all of you here. Those that have not yet returned and are watching through the stream, we eagerly anticipate to see you again as well. If you would, go ahead and open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. Paul's letter to the Ephesians beginning in chapter 4, and that is not 1 Peter, as we have been in. Now we'll start reading in verse 25. Our focus will be on verse 32. Verse verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger, and clamor, and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us, and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let us pray. Fathers, we begin this new year. Give us renewed zeal to commit ourselves to sit under the faithful preaching of your word. Many of us worry from time to time about what we will eat or what we will drink or what we will wear or where we will go or vacation or live or stay. But we know that it is not by bread alone that man lives, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Give us a hunger this new year for your word. Would you pray that for yourselves where you're sitting or with the person you came with or alone in your heart to God, that he would give you a hunger for his word this new year? And I pray, Father, as we approach this text, helping us cast some sort of biblical vision for the way we ought to be as a church in this new year, I pray that you would give us understanding. And more than that, that you would give us obedience, that you would grant to us the desires that we need in order to be faithful to such commands. Help us see these as for our good. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Every new year, we've begun the new year with what I've called the state of the pulpit sermon. And this is an attempt to summarize the past year and to set some form of spiritual trajectory for us as a church with every beginning. The new year begins with a sense of promise and a sense of Things being new or new chances or a blank slate in some ways of thinking. And there are, if you will, two camps within the theology of preaching. And one side is maybe topical and the other side would be exegetical. And most of our sermons here at North Star are what I would call, hopefully you would agree, exegetical. Where we let the text determine the agenda for what it is I'm saying There is a place for topical, but I think there is also a place for pastoral sermons. You can go overboard with this, but I think a pastor should be able to and willing to hit the pause button on occasion and speak very directly to the church under his care. 
And you can typically do that with every text you come across. As we've gone through 1 Peter, we've done that in the application time in each message, whether that's at the end or interspersed through the message, we do that. But there is yet a way to consecrate a sermon, consecrate a week, and what better week than the first week of the year, to help us reflect on what the Lord has done and brought us through, and to stir up zeal or passion for where it seems the Lord would still be pleased to take us and how he would be pleased for us to grow and become more faithful in the new year. As I said, our emphasis is Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So why this text? Why now? It would be unfair of me to just give you an objective exegetical sermon over this passage and not give you some indication or, or tell you why explicitly I've selected this text for this occasion. But nonetheless, I think it should be somewhat obvious. I think and believe, as your pastor, brother, and friend, that this is a word, a truth, an exhortation that we need to hear and heed right now. And I can just tell you, maybe this, you'll find this amusing, but this is just another way of coming at the priority of unity in the body of Christ, which we've been beating that horse, that dead horse, since we got here. Um, but why? why? Why this? Why, why come at it this way? We as a church, North Star Baptist Church, we have a reputation of being a kind and warm and welcoming church. And I'm so grateful for this. As the, it's the result of many factors, many different things, and all of it is owing to God's grace. But there are a few reasons, biblically and practically, to focus on something that may be, right now, seen as a strength. Number one, theologically astute people can be weak in these areas of kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness. Just think of the church of Ephesus itself. We'll discuss that in a bit when we come to the application. Number two, the obvious or the goes without saying type of things um, can often be neglected. And so they need to be urged. This is how Paul says it to the church at Thessalonica. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need that anyone should write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. You don't need anyone to teach you. God has taught you himself how to love one another. But we urge you to do this more and more. And lastly, the other reason we need to focus on this is that it is the last hour. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will go grow cold. You can't have it both ways. You cannot believe that on the one hand the world is going crazy and it's going from bad to worse and not believe that the loss of love is an increasing risk within the church. Being hard and embittered towards the godless world usually grows in lockstep with coldness and a lack of affection towards brother and sister. So why now? Why this text? Why now? Number one, we are growing Some of you may have had a difficult time finding a seat. I still think your ESV study Bible doesn't need its own chair, and your purse doesn't deserve its own chair, so we need to be more efficient in our use of chairs, but we're growing. You know, in in the early days of North Star, when we first got here, we had very few visitors and very few people joining who were not already attending. One of the things that many people prayed for was, help us reach this community. And then the Lord starts bringing people new faces, new families to love, and the response of some, and all of us naturally, is to fear change. The disruption, by definition. How do you respond to God's faithfulness to answer your prayers in this regard? Do you have a superiority or seniority complex towards new people? Do you hate change in general? And even if you answer no to both of those questions... How does that really show itself in your desire 
to get to know and open your lives up and live consistently with our covenant with new people. This pastoral exhortation is to all of us, even though I think many of us are very, very good at that. I'm very thankful. But this must be an all of us together now kind of thing, the way we embrace new people. Secondly, this is in answering the question, why now? Why address this issue right now? Secondly, we may, if the Lord wills, continue to grow and receive new people. Uh, I have never been of the mind that build it and they will come. That's maybe true of sports, not so much of the church. Um, But I do believe that if you prepare and equip yourself to love people, God will send you herding sheep to love. And we're seeing that. I don't know another way to say it. And as more people come in and the rubber bands of social and relational ties get stretched and tested... The temptation for some of us, or all of us, will be just to withdraw to the people that we already know and that we're already comfortable with and that we like well enough and just drill down with them. Consider this as well. As we grow and receive new people, it really only takes one bad apple. And the perversion of hardness of heart and unkindness will creep in like cancer. And if there is no firewall of intentional kindness between us, then that one bad apple coming in here, unbeknownst to us, will spread like a virus. And we'll look up in a year or so and have a church split on our hands or something worse. And I'm only using this severe and weighty language and this imagery of warning because I've seen this very thing happen recently in multiple cases. And if you had spoken to people at this one church in particular down in Texas and asked them, do you think in a year's time you'll have a church split on your hands? To a man, none of them would have said, oh yeah, that's definitely a risk. They loved each other. But this virus, this cancer of harshness crept in. We're all different. This is the third reason why now. We're all different. We're culturally diverse, even though we look similar On the exterior, we're culturally diverse. We come from all different places. And sometimes we have mutually mutually exclusive, differing expectations of kindness towards one another. Your flavor and language of kindness might be very different than what another person might expect. And so the risk of offending each other is actually very high. So... What do we do in light of all this difficulty and all of these challenges to have the right heart towards one another? Well, let's heed the words of the Apostle together. Be kind to one another. The meaning, of course, is simple. Sometimes when we ask, well, what does that really mean? Or what's the Greek? Or what's the tense of the verb? We can. What really that means is, not, I really want to understand, but I'm not really excited about obeying this, so i got to figure out if it means something else so that I can obey that something else instead of what it obviously means. But nonetheless, this word is wonderful to understand. It carries the meaning of easy or pleasant. And it is the same word that is used in that most beloved passage from chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel. My yoke is easy. And my burden is light. What is appealing about the yoke of Jesus is not that it is not a yoke at all, but that it is not harsh. It's not overbearing. It's not inordinate. And it is all for our good. So being kind in this sense that the Apostle is using in Ephesians 4, verse 23, is that we should do the opposite of harshness. We should do the opposite of being overbearing. We should be the opposite of exacting. In short, that goodness and gentleness that we see in Jesus, that we love so much when it is directed towards us, especially in His capacity as our Master and Lord, we should be doing towards one another. That's the same type of goodness and gentleness that we ought to extend to one another. That's what Paul is commanding. And there are a few characteristics of this command. 
he says, be kind to one another. It is not promoting a posture of passivity. We might want to read it this way. Whenever you have an opportunity to interact with someone, be sure to be kind in that interaction. Or another way. Spend time with people that are easy to get along with so that it's easy for you to be kind all the time. Rather, the flavor is this. Get after it. Go create opportunities to be kind. Be on the lookout for ways to be kind. Go hunting for ways to be kind. Use your creativity and thoughtfulness to make it the case. It also excludes a quid pro quo mindset. We wait for someone else to be kind, and then we show kindness to them. It also excludes preferential treatment. He says, be kind to one another. You know, if you've been around here for a very long time, I love the one another commands in the New Testament. Our church covenant is built on those commands. Be kind to one another. All of them? Jesus? Here's what we might want it to say. Gradually become closer and closer to people who are just like you, who never make you feel uncomfortable, and be sure to let the majority of your time be spent with people who fit in your box of an ideal friend. And be kind to them. Or we could also just be kind in theory. We can conceive of ourselves as being really kind people. We have these good emotions and feelings of kindness, but it never actually works itself out in our lives. It's the same problem with theoretical love. You can esteem yourself as a very loving person, but when it gets difficult and you've actually got to go and love someone, it's like, well, there are probably better people to do that. Rather, it means go out and find ways to be kind to everyone. And this is a simple lesson taught in children's cartoons. I may or may not know that on the basis of recent experience as the father of two small children. So when a little kid or an Australian dog doesn't want to invite some kid over that they really like, the parents got to come and correct them. No, you can't do that. You can't exclude them. You've got to include them, even if you don't really like spending much time with them. But we as adults become so sophisticated in our relationships that we do the same thing, and we cover for it. We excuse it. And we try to make it into something good. We're just trying to go for a certain vibe, you know, in our time with people. We're, we... It wouldn't feel right to have them over. It won't be as intimate if we spend time with them. Yeah, our relationship, we don't really fit together. Our, our personality types maybe are at odds. And some of the ways we do that is we just go without thinking. Like, I, at the risk of offending people, I'm going to use this example. Let's say that uh, we had a large influx of a people group that were not like us, either in skin t- color or dialect or whatever, relocated here by the government or mass exodus from a country overseas. And they started coming to this church. And we saw that those people from that nationality, let's just say South Korea, that they all hung together and really only talked to each other. And, and there weren't many lines of connection back and forth between that group and our group here at this church. We would all, I think, to a man, see that as a problem. Because you would see that as two churches. One that is South Korean in this building and one that is American, the molting pot, right? But we do the same thing. It's not as obvious. Well, what about age? What about life stage? And we don't see it as a big enough problem. Be kind to one another. You can't exclude people. So, that's the first piece of this text, the first exhortation. Be kind to one another. Go and get after it. Don't exclude people. It's the whole body. If the kidney decided it didn't want anything to do with a particular other part, how long would that other part benefit and survive? This is the 
body analogy in the New Testament. We, we're in a symbiotic relationship with each other, that we need each other. And if you exclude someone, you're essentially cutting that person off from the nutrients and the life-sustaining force of the body itself. The head, Jesus, doesn't treat you that way. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't have a, a particular personality type, a particular age in the church that he really likes to, to hang out with? He's a 30, 33-year-old Jewish man who has no children. What life stage is that? But he's a friend of sinners. And he seeks us out. The point of this passage is do the same thing. This is basic. Also, tender-hearted members. He says, be kind to one another, tender-hearted. The literal rendering of this word would be something like this. Have good bowels towards someone. Or a good spleen, or a good liver. That sounds very odd to say in an English context. The Hebrews regarded the bowels as the seat of the tenderer affections. Especially kindness, benevolence, or compassion. So in the confines of English, we say heart. It seems that every culture picks some organ in your torso to to be the analog for deep-seated emotions and affections. One striking example of this word, having good bowels towards someone, is seen in Mark chapter 1, verses 40 and 41. Except here, uh, the evangelist uses the verb form. Here's what it says. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. This is what Mark says about Jesus. Moved with pity. Having good bowels towards him. His, His heart was moved towards him. Being moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. He felt it in his gut, in the pit of his stomach. You know, if you've ever felt deep pity and compassion towards someone, you know what that means and what that feels like. And there's a danger of just chalking that up to the humanity of Jesus. And like, well, he only felt that in his capacity as a human. But no... I think the human feelings of affections and being moved with pity in the Son of God were but a finite expression of God's will to have pity and compassion and to be so moved and act on behalf of the afflicted. I think that's a better sentence than you might realize. So, as is the case with every part of this text, We are being pointed to the heart of Christ and the simple mandate to be like Him. Be moved with pity. Have that degree of compassion. Be tender-hearted towards one another. And there's a few characteristics of this command as well. Whereas the first command dealt with what we do outwardly, be kind to one another, this command points to something deeper, doesn't it? It's obvious. It's a posture of the heart that is being commanded here. Have these feelings and commitments within you. And I think it's important to note the priority of ordering. He, even if we lack these feelings of tenderheartedness, we're still obligated to be kind. And that's why he says, be kind first. Don't worry about getting all the emotions and affections in your heart just right before you go out and be kind. Just be kind to one another. You also need to be tender-hearted. We would acknowledge that it's not ideal to try and continue to show kindness and compassion without the feelings of, the motive of, the, those bowels being moved, the, the tender-heartedness towards another person. But I want to encourage you on this point. Even if you lack those feelings of compassion and tenderheartedness, here's something that Timothy Keller says on this that I think is so helpful. Our culture says that feelings of love are the basis for actions of love. And of course, that can be true. But it is truer to say that actions of love can lead consistently to feelings of love. So the point is, if you, if you look at your heart and say, I'm not very tenderhearted towards anyone. 
right? And that can be a genuine Christian experience. That's not ideal, but we're on this side of glory, and that can be true in your heart. If you wake up on the wrong side of the bed, you haven't had your coffee, if you had too much coffee, you can lack tenderheartedness towards another person, but yet still be kind and trust that as the Spirit works in you, He will produce tenderheartedness. I, think, I do think we need to work on it, though. We recognize in our hearts we lack tenderheartedness. There's a danger in just continuing to serve and minister out of a lack of tenderheartedness. Well, i got to be kind, and you just keep going and going and going. And if you do that and you war against the Spirit as He's working to produce tenderheartedness in you, you can become like Martha. Poor Martha, right? She's used as a negative example in so many things. But she's there serving, getting dinner ready for the Son of God, and because... She doesn't have tenderheartedness towards her sister or towards Jesus in that instance. She just becomes embittered. So there is a danger, and you do need to focus on becoming more tenderhearted in your heart towards other people. There are things that we can do to help us have more of a tender heart. So what should we do? I think we should consider what is the opposite of tenderheartedness? Well, obviously, I think we could say hard-heartedness. Or as as already alluded to, bitterness. This is how the author of Hebrews says it in Hebrews 12, verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. You may feel where you're sitting right now as you listen to me, you may feel completely inadequate to produce tenderheartedness in your heart. And to a degree, you are right. You cannot pull yourself up by your own bootstraps and produce this compassion, this pity of Jesus Christ within yourself. However, you can root out bitterness. You can declare war in your own heart and in your affections against bitterness towards brother and sister. Even towards the world. We don't have time to go and read the whole thing, but read Psalm 73 as a a homework assignment. What happened in Asaph's heart is that he became bitter towards the world, and it led him to poor thinking and thinking wrongly about God. That same thing can happen in us as we look at how the world has gone to pot and we worry about it and we angst about what's happening. That same thing can happen, and we become bitter We become like an animal to God. So stand in awe as we move on from this command of tenderheartedness. Stand in awe and understand that holiness, being pleasing to the Lord, goes down to the deepest level of who you are. To the core, your very soul. God's commands, even through His prophets and apostles, is so far-reaching that He cares about how you feel. He wants you to feel the right way towards your brother and sister, to have a tender heart, to be moved with pity. And we know this is the case. You can do all the actions of love outwardly, 1 Corinthians 13, right? But without love, it just becomes worthless. Not impressive to the Lord at all. We can be too quick to define love as action. Would you accept that definition of love from God towards you? No, in Christ, His love was made manifest. He loved us and sent Christ to save us out of that love. His love became manifest. That's how it needs to work in you. You need to love from the heart. And now we see what I think I can, with great biblical warrant, call the crowning jewel of forgiveness. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So, even in light of all of its helpful truth, I hope it's been helpful, of clarifying how we're to relate to one another, how we're to feel towards one another, this whole enterprise of being tender-hearted will, despite the best of intentions, fall flat very often. Do you not find that's the case? Even in your own marriages? And it is not just that we need better listening and interpersonal skills. And it's not that, just that we need to learn to be more courteous. We, we always 
need to be working on that. And we all need to be working on that. We read that in the Bible reading plan for the church in, in Titus 3 this morning. Show perfect courtesy towards one another. Like, we need to work on that. But, but as sinful creatures, the problem is a little bit deeper than just a lack of ways to be courteous and listening skills. Part of the meaning of sin is insanity. And that insanity in our nature, in our rebellion, is such that we will often prefer not making peace. We don't want to bury the hatchet. We feel like we're losing something if we do. And this is why he says, forgive one another. Because it's not going to work. You're going to try to be kind. You're going to try to be tenderhearted. You're going to try to be compassionate. You're going to try to do all these things like for, for a day or two. And then it's not going to work. And the person you're trying to be kind and tenderhearted towards is not going to respond the way you hoped. So what do you do? You forgive. The meek will inherit the earth, and the peacemakers will be called sons of God. We must proactively work to not hold things against people, which is the meaning of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that you have to restore the relationship immediately. In many cases where forgiveness is needed and even commanded, you can't immediately restore the relationship. Trust takes time to rebuild. There are several things that need to take place with many kinds of sins when they are committed. But forgiveness means to stop holding that thing against that person when they are in the wrong. This is the basis of our restored relationship with God. This is the most simple way to understand the gospel, that He forgives us our transgressions in Christ. And yet it is the hardest thing to do, is it not? If you've found an easy path towards forgiveness, you need to come talk to me afterwards. This is hard to forgive from the heart. And as if to reemphasize the need to forgive without discrimination, he says one another again. It's easy to forgive certain people, especially if you expect something from them. What about forgiving the person where you are actually losing something to forgive them? I want to caution here against the wait until someone repents mindset. We don't have time to drill on this in full, but there is a teaching, a persuasion out there that says you really don't have to forgive someone until they come to you and repent or ask for forgiveness. You know that I would like to spend a lot of time there because I'd like to spend a lot of time anywhere in the text. I would like to talk about the parameters of forgiveness and restored relationships and where one ends and one begins and how one can happen without the other, but that's not what this text is about. But I want to leave you with this. I want to level the Bible's warning against unforgiveness in your heart. And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. In the context of that story, I don't think I need to stand there at the master's judgment seat and say, yeah, but he didn't come asking forgiveness. The wisdom of this world is to make too big of a deal about offending each other. And the perverted pride of many in our camp as Christians is, in essence, to say, deal with it. This is who I am. This is the truth. If you don't like it, go find something else. The way of Christ is to consider your brother and sister in Christ more significant than you and forgive them of all the faults that you possibly can. So I want to give you some sort of a vision for a forgiving community. 
This is how Peter himself says it in 1 Peter 4, verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. What is he talking about there? Covering a multitude of sins. That if you're operating in a loving way towards one another, then you're apt to forgive and not hold things against other people. And you're not waiting around for them to come and tell you how wrong they were in order to extend that forgiveness to them. It just covers a multitude of sins. I wish we could talk more about how that actually operates, but just know that that is how God has treated you. Have you asked for forgiveness for every sin you've ever committed? Are you repentant to the degree and level you need to be towards the God of the universe? Are you sorry enough And yet in Christ, He forgives you. Be that way towards one another. That's exactly what He says, and that's where we're going next. next. Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is a life rooted in the Gospel. He's not restricting the application of the Gospel just to the idea of forgiveness. I think it's clear that He's connecting the whole thing. Kindness, tenderness of heart, and forgiveness all rooted in the Gospel. And in essence, this is identical to what Paul says in Colossians 3. Here's how he says it in that letter. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. The problem, we really need to understand this. You've got to get this. The problem is that we do not walk consistently with the gospel nearly enough. We are not familiar with the gospel and its implications nearly enough. The gospel in relation to this is quite obvious, I hope. As God in Christ forgave you, We throw that term around a lot, and I mention the word gospel or the good news frequently in messages, but I want to make sure that you understand what I'm saying. We have many visitors in here, many young people, who may not yet know clearly what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that God, the one who created us and deserves your utmost devotion every moment of every day, out of no obligation in Himself, but out of love, sent His Son to pay the penalty for your rebellion without you asking for it. He moved in mercy towards us, not because He had to, but because He wanted to prove just how merciful He could be in sending His only Son to die the worst possible death imaginable and to be cut off from the presence of His Father to pay your penalty because that's what your sin deserved. And if you will but trust in that Son, His name is Jesus Christ, then you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. All of them. Because through faith, you are united to Christ and receive all of His righteousness, all of His good works, credited now to you through faith. We didn't deserve it. God didn't have to make it happen. This was His plan to glorify Himself. And it seems to be the case that both Paul and Peter in different places anticipate that as one grows in their understanding of what the gospel is, that they will at the same time, grow in an aptitude and a zeal and a willingness to forgive. Because that's what life rooted in the gospel means. On the other hand, I think that an unforgiving person really doesn't believe deeply in the great and awesome day of the Lord. Say it another way. It would not matter to Peter or Paul, or impress them if you had a whole lot of theology right. Reading all the good books, memorizing Scripture, if you were not consistently kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving towards one another. They wouldn't be impressed at all. 
it would probably see you in a worse spot than a pagan. This is how Jesus says it in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That is a terrifying passage. The harshness or judgment or unforgiving posture that you have towards others, that will be in evidence on judgment day and will be leveled against you. How much of your life will then burn if your strictness towards others is applied to your life? The gospel, part of the gospel, and our posture towards ourselves and the way we think about ourselves is to see ourselves as the chief of sinners. And the way this should map to your relationships is to say something like this, or at least to feel it, the one who needs the most forgiveness is me. And so to close, I want to give us a few things to think about for a kind, tender-hearted forgiving North Star Baptist Church. As I've alluded to already, in theologically conservative circles, what is objectively or biblically what we would define as harshness or meanness or a lack of tenderness, a lack of forgiveness, a lack of graciousness, that is seen as a virtue nowadays. The world has gone crazy And so it is seen as an attribute of being faithful to the truth. If you have a blog or a website, or if you write books or pastor churches, to have a brazen, chest-out posture and, and that you're able to beat down the opposition and just show how stupid everyone else is for not agreeing with you. Let's say someone disagrees with you about something very important to you. Could mention a lot of things. Sabbath, the age of the earth, the doctrines of grace, social and political solutions, the relationship between the church and the world. There are teachers and authors and preachers and pastors out there who implicitly or explicitly encourage harshness towards brothers and sisters who disagree with you. And all because they stand for truth. And if I did not think I would be at risk of overly offending you and coming under the ire of opposition, I would name names right now. But ask yourself this. What results in my heart towards others as I listen to and feed on the teachings of these men? And it may be nothing wrong in them explicitly, but what results in your heart Is my heart filled with frustration towards those with whom I disagree? Frustration towards the lost and bitterness towards the opponents of the gospel? Prayerlessness towards my opponents? Or am I drawn to love my brothers and sisters with whom I disagree? Is my heart filled with mercy and pity towards the lost? Am I quick to pray for the saving even of our enemies? And I still have fear in this vein. I mentioned a church split at the beginning of this message. This is exactly what happened. And I'm worried. Harshness, especially harshness and hard-heartedness that is encouraged by a teacher, author, or pastor you respect is totally undetectable for the most part. That's number one. Guard against that. Ask yourself seriously, what is happening in my heart? These aspects of tenderness and kindness and forgiveness towards those that I need to forgive and be tender and compassionate towards. Number two, in this aspect of being exhorted or exhorting one another, if you just try to obey the one another commands in the New Testament um, without kindness, without tenderheartedness, without forgiveness, it's just going to end in disaster. Someone said to me recently, as they came and started to learn about our church, they said, this is an intense place. 
And that's because the nature of our promises towards each other are to be up in each other's business. How else are we going to root out sin in our lives? But if you do that without kindness, without compassion, without forgiveness, it will rip the place apart. This means that when you share a rebuke or an exhortation, you must do all of that with everything that we've been talking about in this message. And it also means that when you are exhorted or rebuked, you need to do all that this sermon has entailed. It takes a lot of kindness. You need to understand this. It takes a lot of kindness to be a type of person who can be exhorted. Would others feel comfortable coming to you and sharing a rebuke or an exhortation? You've got to open your life up to people somehow. You've got to show that if they come to you, even imperfectly, that you're not going to just knock them down. Part of kindness and tenderheartedness is listening to one another. And do not think too quickly that you see and understand what the other is saying, especially if you're the one being exhorted or admonished. There are so many unkind ways to respond to an exhortation or rebuke that to list them all would be unproductive. But just ask yourself this. Are you treating the exhortations of your brothers and sisters as valuable as you ought to? Have you considered that they are part of the way that God is going to make sure you make it home safely? That even in their imperfection, that that is part of his wisdom to make sure that you don't fall away? Are you treating them with that level of respect and care? Just ask yourself this. Do you walk around thinking that you have the best idea as to who you are and what your strengths and weaknesses are? If you do, if you think that, that you have the best vision of yourself, you're in trouble. Big trouble. Here's a question. This is, this is the third thing under this heading of a kind, tender-hearted, forgiving North Star Baptist Church. Just, just begin asking yourself this question all the time. How will this affect other people? This is a very practical way to obey the consider one another, just as we sang the beginning of the service, to prefer one another, how will this affect other people? Thoughtlessness may not be intentional. And you may only offend people with the best of intentions in your heart. But you're not asking the question, how will this really come across? How will this affect others? Even Christ did not please himself. This is the thing we love about Jesus and his arrival here. He didn't come to seek his own. He came to seek the good of others. There are more things we could say. I plan to say a lot about hospitality. Peter goes there in 1 Peter 4, 8 through 10. He says, right after saying that passage we already quoted about love covering a multitude of sin, he immediately goes and says, do not neglect to show hospitality. Show hospitality without grumbling. That is, that is a very practical, tangible way to show that your love, your kindness, your tenderheartedness, and your forgiveness is real. You're not just forgiving from your heart and it's all in your thoughts and affections. You're actually having someone who may be difficult over to your house. And he's only difficult or she's only difficult because you have things against them. But what breaks through that is showing hospitality towards each other. We also need to be Rooted in the gospel, as we've already said. If it is true that the reason we are unforgiving and harsh towards others is that we are not familiar with the gospel nearly enough, then study the gospel. You need to be an expert of the ins and outs of what God has done in Christ. I try to give you some window into the glory of God's gospel in every message that we have here on a Sunday. Do not quickly forget it. Sad to me, it is a sad, sad thing that the theology of the gospel and standing for truth, again, can be so severed from the life that should come from the gospel. Also, we must banish harshness. Banish harshness. This is an exhortation to husbands. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. 
Or to fathers or parents, generally, you could say, apply it to both. Fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And leaders, that's, he, Jesus, Peter's going to come to that in his letter in a few chapters. But in Ezekiel, this is how God says it to the leaders of Israel. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and you with force and harshness have ruled them. God hates harshness. Banish it. Consider that in the ministry of Jesus, the only people he reserved harshness for were the religiously proud. So you have a choice. Either you are making the judgment that the person you are being harsh towards is the religiously proud, and that is the only thing that is going to get towards them, and simultaneously that you yourself are not religiously proud. And lastly, bear with this word of exhortation. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Write it on a card. Put it on your refrigerator. Make it the rule of your household. Commit it to memory. Prioritize it above everything. It says, above all, Peter says in in chapter 4, above all, let brotherly love continue. We know that this letter that we've been in this morning is written to the church at Ephesus. So, how did they respond to this exhortation of being kind, tender-hearted, and loving, forgiving towards one another? Well, we know at least in terms of how the church became over years and years, they did not listen or commit to obey Paul in this point. Jesus himself says to the church at Ephesus, but I have this against you. After praising them for having good theology, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. May we all bear with this word of exhortation and not be thinking in this moment, oh, it would be so great if so-and-so would listen to this and apply it to their lives. But to us, to myself, how can we be kind, tender-hearted, and forgiving? Or else we're living at odds with the gospel. That's your choice this morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. May each of us have a posture of putting our hands over our mouths, considering our ways, and returning to the Lord. Help us think on the vast encouragement available to us in the mere fact that you have forgiven us in Christ. For anyone who had placed their faith in the Son of God, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, will receive the full pardon of all their sins. May we live consistently with that truth towards one another. In Jesus' name, amen.